1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Michael Devitt, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, Emeritus. His new book, Biological Essentialism, is just out from Cambridge University Press. What makes a species a species? What keeps all the members together? Aristotle answered the species question by positing unchanging essences, properties that all and only members of a species shared. Individuals belong to a species by possessing this essence. Biologists and philosophers of biology today are either not essentialists at all, or if they think they are essences, they are relational historical properties. In his provocative book, Devitt argues for a new form of biological essentialism in which intrinsic essences, probably largely genetic properties, are part of what tie species together, and that the actual explanatory practices of biologists commit them to this view. Devitt responds to many philosophers that have been critical of this position, And he also applies his essentialism to ongoing debates about race realism and anti-realism. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Michael Devitt. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy.
0: Hello, Gary.
1: (laughs) Nice to talk with you after such a long time. Um, Yes, indeed. Before we get started, um, I always like to start with a little bit of introduction in terms of, you know, who you are, what your interests are in philosophy, and then how you came to write this book. I mean, most people will know who you are, uh, but um, it's always interesting to know how you came to write the book.
0: Right. Well, it's actually quite a nice story, too. Um, As you know, I I really worked... The center of my work has always been in the theory of language, and I was working on uh, an issue in the theory of language um rigidity which um uh, my friend Saul Kripke introduced into the into the uh philosophical jargon and uh uh I was writing a paper of the on the the problem of applying rigidity which was introduced primarily for singular terms applying it to uh general terms and kind terms in in particular and um in the course of writing this article I had to take I, I had a thesis that the notion of rigidity we needed was one not of rigid designation but rigid application that's what we need when we get to kind terms and and uh what i discovered in i realized as i wrote this was that this committed me to certain essentialist views and if we applied rigid application to biological kinds like tigers it had uh consequences uh essentialist consequences for tigers. It it seemed to require that if something was a tiger, it was essentially tigers, and it required that tigers, in fact, have essences, and not only that, it seemed to me intrinsic essences. So I knew enough about biology, because I have hobnobbed with a lot of philosophers of biology, to realize that that was a controversial view. And so that, I researched it, and I read a wonderful article by Samia Okasha, Um, in which he set out the consensus view about um, essentialism in biology, Uh, both essentialism of kinds, like tigers, but also uh, essentialism about a particular tiger, say, Benji. And I was quite stunned by what I read in Samia's paper, uh, because it seemed all wrong to me. I thought that this consensus view in the philosophy of biology, and to a degree in biology, though, of course, most biologists don't, biologists are not worrying too much about these metaphysical issues, seemed all wrong. So I immediately sat down, and and I put together what I called heretical thoughts on biological essentialism, and I sent this around to all the philosophers of biology I knew, which were quite a few, because it... Uh, several of my students are philosophers of biology and it's also quite strong in Australia and also I sent it to a lot of people I didn't, philosophers of biology I didn't know and it was about eight pages. Anyway I got this absolutely, you might think you send something like this out nothing very much will happen particularly since I was um, disagreeing so much with the consensus. and uh, quite the contrary, I got wonderful responses from from people. Uh, just just terrific. I ended up with hundred pages of email exchanges on this um, And what was interesting about the first that that in itself, this wonderful response, I mean all full of full of um, help too guidance saying because I hadn't read anything except some hero paper. And they pointed me to this and they pointed me to that. And basically they said I was wrong. Um and but they were extremely polite. Uh and um and in this I have to say a terrific contrast with and I had disagreements with the Chomsky's who uh, uh don't take disagreement well, I think we can say anyway, um but the thing that struck me was this Despite all this help and this disagreement, my fundamental argument stood up. And I guess we'll get to my fundamental argument later on. So I thought that that was how I got going on. And I wrote my my first paper on it Um, was a few. I started writing pretty well straight away after this. I just published the paper on rigidity and I went on. to publish my first paper on this, which is called "Resurrecting Biological Essentialism," that's a response to um, uh, I think, uh was it, Elliot Sober? Someone said that biological essentialism is dead. Um, so I resurrected it, and uh, and that was that was my paper, and that that's how I got going on it. It stirred up quite a, a controversy, and um, one thing led to another. I wrote several more papers over the years and uh, then i put them all together in a book oh, And this one further thing uh later on as i was writing this book i got a little bit engaged partly because of someone who came to, and gave a talk at cuny um uh, K. Sean spencer um i got a bit engaged in thinking about r- racial realism and racial essentialism and um uh, so i thought well i'll um, I'll add that at the end of the book, sort of sex the book up a bit with a, a whole chapter on on race, realism and essentialism. So that's how it came about.
1: Okay, good. Well, I hope we we will get to the main themes and the racial, the racial part at the end. Um, but okay, so to get started on the the main your position, right? Um uh, you you call it in the book, um, partly intrinsic biological taxon essentialism. In other words, you're not you're not saying that you know uh that all of you know the the entire explanation of a biological taxon is an intrinsic is intrinsic, but that it is a par- partly but essentially. Uh, intrinsic. So, could you first explain your basic view?
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, but first, let me just remark on uh, on that uh, the context. Yes, um, the the received view, which I rejected, was t- certainly that there is no place for intrinsic essentialism in biology. The the consensus, the main consensus in the philosophy of biology, and to a degree biology, is that. The essence of a kind is a relational matter, in particular historical matter. Uh, Okasha puts it: uh, the essence of a of a species is is being a certain chunk of the tree of life. Exactly what that amounts, amounted to was one of the puzzles for me, and it's one of the one of the things we might get to later, because I addressed it, but that. Was the consensus of the people who are prepared to talk about essences. But essences is a, to talk, the word essence is a bit of a dirty word in biology. And so a lot of people don't talk about it. And some actually explicitly reject any sort of essentialism. Uh, excellent philosopher of biology, very interesting philosopher of biology, John Dupre, for example, does. So there's a sort of mini position among the uh, philosophers of biology but perhaps sort of a, a, a different consensus that there is no there are no essences right so that's the background now what i was urging i didn't want from the beginning i didn't want to resist the idea that there was a historical component to the essence i thought i i, I thought i don't know if this is true but it seems quite likely and so i didn't i was explicitly not Re- rejecting that, what I wanted to say was that, and so I wasn't rejecting that part of the, the consensus, but I was wanting to reject their their uh, re- denial of intrinsic. So I was I wanted to argue for an intrinsic component the to the essence. And my final end up position in the book is that there is both an intrinsic and a historical a- aspect of the essence. So, what is an essence? Um, well, uh, um, if we take some kind uh, or some property, it doesn't matter whether we took property, uh, it's the essence of P is given in this way. For it, I mean, there are various ways you can put it, but uh, here's one way of putting it. Something is a, a P, a member of P, or uh, in virtue of, something and whatever it is a member of the p in virtual is the essence what you could put it another way what makes something a p or another way to put it is what is it to be a p and instead of talking of essence you could talk of nature what is the nature of being p what is it to be p what makes something p again as i said or you could talk about the identity what is the identity of p or even I avoid this, but some people like this talk, the definition. So people will talk, for example, of the definition of water. And they're not talking anything to do with semantics. They're talking of a scientific definition. The scientific definition of water is, you know, we all know H2O. This is a statement of the essence. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about essences. And then I, what's this historical versus intrinsic? Okay, it's very easy to get uh, a grip on this. Some essences are fully intrinsic. Um, an obvious example would be gold, the essence of gold, and it's having atomic number 79. Uh, some essences are partly intrinsic and partly relational. Uh, my favorite example is, think of a pencil. Now, the intrinsic essence the sorry the essence of a pencil is partly re- relational it's relate, it's something to do with its relationship to, to us for something to be a pencil is for it to function in a certain way and that it has that function is something that depends on its relationship to us and it doesn't have to be just a, a relationship to us you've got you've got some kinds nests for example N- a nest is a the essence of a nest is again partly relational it's relational of course to the organism for which it's a a nest so um the essence of of a pencil is partly relational but it's not fully relational because its essence really is being a writing instrument partly that but so too is the essence of a pen and yet pens are different from pencils what's the difference between a Essential difference between a pen and a pencil. Well, let's not go into this. But but it's obvious it's something intrinsic, right? It's something about the, the way it works as a writing instrument. So if you want the essence of pens and pencils, you've got to talk partly of some relational aspect to an organism and partly about what's intrinsic to it. So you can have fully intrinsic essences like gold, partly intrinsic, partly relational like pencil and then you can have fully relation uh being Australian is is my favorite example of this something is Australian in virtue of its relationship to Australia and almost anything probably indeed anything can be Australian so you know the Sydney Opera House is Australia um Australia uh uh Rupert Murdoch is Australian uh, the saying uh no worries mate is Australian. All of these things. Penfolds, Grange is Australian. Great bottle of wine. So all of these things are Australian. The only thing that makes them Australian is their relationship to Australia. It's nothing intrinsic. So you can have essences of all sorts. And I um, believe that all kinds have essences, even uninteresting kinds.
1: So so let me just... uh, Okay. Um, So maybe we should talk a bit about the you know, the fact that it's a dirty word in biology. I mean, I mean, you do touch on this, the idea that, you know, the term self of essence, you know, has this Aristotelian, you know, trappings, as you put it, of, you know, some sort of, you know, unchanging, you know, fixed, you know, essence that, you know, ties all these things, whatever, you know, in this case, species together. And, you know, I mean, there there's... That presumably that is not what you mean by essence because that's what you know, I I don't you, you want to or in the book anyway, you um you modify the notion of essence to avoid these Aristotelian, you know, implications of it, right? In the light of, you know, the fact that there's like constant variation and, you know, all that kind of, you know, there's, you know, nothing in biology is a hundred percent, you know, there's, there's always exceptions everywhere. So how do you explain what an essence is given all the variation and indeterminacy and all those sorts of things? Why, why? Why call these properties essences at all? If once you take away the Aristotelian trappings,
0: well, okay, let's have a word about Aristotle and the trappings. I don't know. I am no historian of philosophy, and I have no. I am not qualified to comment on what Aristotle's views were on this. And by the way, neither nor are nearly everyone who does comment on them. <laughs> um, so uh, i just don't get into that at all uh, but when when people philosophers of biology who are who are on the other side on the essentialism issue here talk of things as aristotelian um, and which they're against well if i'm against them i say i'm against them too i'm not taking on the issue of whether my view is aristotelian or not but let me just say that there are people who have similarly uh, intrinsic views about the biological essences. To me, who say that these views are the sort of views I I urge, which I'm defending, are quite Aristotelian. I don't know, Carrie. I'm not interested in trying to argue. Uh, Aristotle was an incredibly great philosopher, but we don't have to now be worrying whether or not. Our views are still are Aristotelian or they're not Aristotelian. The, what matters is whether they're true. And so I, I don't get into that. Um, um I'm not interested in arguing that historical issue. Um so um why call it that I may may not remember everything you asked, but you why call it essentialism? Look, I I um i'm not wedded to the word essence and essentialism but i'm not scared of it them either and i use the word because that's the familiar word it's what it's what the philosophers of biology and some biologists are talking about they talk about essences so i'm it would be perverse of me it seems to uh not go along with this usage and um Particularly if I did, I didn't go along with the usage in order to minimize my real opposition to what they're saying. My disagreement is just best stated by using the very language that they use.
1: Okay, fair enough. Um, so, what's your? But as I
0: said a little earlier, let me yep. just interrupt. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so far as I'm concerned, we could we could talk, and in a way, I feel more happy talking of the nature of things.
1: Okay. Um, so, yeah, so, so the nature of, you know, a, a, a species or being a member of a species uh, is partly intrinsic, right? It's a matter of some intrinsic property or not. Um, yes. Okay. And, uh, and so what sorts of, well, two questions then one is, and these are related, I think, um, you know, what sort of intrinsic property or properties do you have in mind? And second of all, what's what's your argument for thinking that these intrinsic properties are, in fact, part of what makes a species what it is?
0: Right. Okay. Well, um, the obvious place to go, where everyone goes when they are thinking of the intrinsic properties or wondering about the intrinsic, unintrinsic essence, they go to the genes. But it's important, it seems to me, to be a little bit non-committal here in in the thesis. So I am non-committal. It's not too clear. I mean, the science is not as clear to me, and I think to anyone as it should be, just exactly what there is some underlying, intrinsic underlying property, which is the essence. I tend to say probably, or I tend to say something like largely genetic or probably largely genetic, but I don't, I'm pretty non-committal. It's, you know, as I said, this is where one automatically goes. One automatically starts thinking of the genome. So, you know, we hear these, the popular press uh, are fond of this, talking of the genome of the Neanderthal and the, the genome of the human. Right, well, that's surely zoning in on the sort of underlying intrinsic property that I'm talking about. But I want to be, I want to leave it to science. I mean, this is, this is the only respectable thing for philosophers to be doing. The nature of biological species is something that we're still learning about, in my view. But I want to say it's a partly intrinsic, underlying, largely genetic property.
1: But if, if biologists, um, you know, as a group, don't uh, individuate species by intrinsic properties, then... Um, that's probably because they have discovered a lot about genomes and genetics and developmental trajectories, and they say, "Whoops, nope, there is no such thing."
0: Well, I see. I just think that's false. You see, I don't. I think they do. I. I think uh, we've got to we've got to distinguish here, as always, you know, between what people say, what their theses are, and what they actually do, and. I think the practices of biology, the, the actual practices of biologists, whatever they say when you get them aside and start addressing them in a philosophical manner, their actual practices uh, are committed to implicit implicitly committed to historical, partly historical and partly intrinsic essences. That is my view. And what I'm saying here about biology, of course, is not something special about biology. It's the same uh, I mean when I was growing up, in philosophy, um, we were seeing the death throes of, of positivism about science. And uh, there was a, a realist movement in science, which I became part of, arguing uh, that for scientific realism. Uh, now, one of the things we uh, pe- people pointed out was that uh, scientists in their practices, we're realists. Actually, see what physicists do, and it's implicitly realist. As, that is, it's implicitly assuming the very existence of these unobservable entities, which his theory talks about. But draw them aside and uh, say, no. So okay. So what's your uh, what's your uh, theory of uh, of unobservables? You were scientific realist, and they'll. Tell you no, because they were brought up, they did a bit of philosophy when they were undergraduates and they were taught uh, instrumentalism in philosophy 101 or something or other. And that's what they think of as philosophy. And so they would trot out the uh, an instrumentalist view. Oh, no, 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 I don't really. Oh, no, there aren't really electrons and atoms. Viruses, you might ask. There aren't really. This is just a way we speak in order to, uh, and so on and so forth. But that isn't actually what was going on. And similarly, in biology, it seems to me, whatever they say, and I would say the same, by the way, about linguists, when they are d- denying the Chomskyan linguists, when they're denying this, that, and the other. But look at what actually goes on in linguistics. It seems at odds, to me, with what they're saying. So it's common for scientists to practice, to do something in their practice which exemplifies a commitment to a certain position, yet when asked about that position they will uh deny
1: it um hmm. well so what so what are the what are these practices i mean you mentioned, you know certain uh, certainly specifically certain explanatory practices
0: but can yes. you go uh, yes, into okay.
1: more well, into, the, yes. into the practices you're talking about here
0: yes right so yeah i i think you're right it's time to get to the to the um to the main argument, and the main argument is really simple. Now, this was the argument that it's an explanatory argument, and this is what I I set out in my heretical thoughts. Which you remember how the whole thing got going. Um, as long as I can remember <laughs> in my life, I've had the, had what I suppose is I'm told is an Aristotelian view about this. That you know things have natures, and these natures, and this is the key thing. These natures explain. The way the thing is since i got involved just... in this since i got involved in this business i've discovered that this is indeed a very old idea going back again scholars i'm not one say it's to be found in aristotle so the key thing about an essence or a nature is that it's in virtue of having that nature that that nature explains along with the environment all the characteristics of the of the object so you see you see a lump of gold, and, and uh, you see gold, and it's it has all these com- uh, characteristics. It's yellow, it's malleable, it's very dense, it has a certain boiling point, it has, uh, and, and so on. All of those properties, everything you observe about it, is to be explained by its nature, its essence, if you like, together, of course, with the environment. Let's never forget the environment change the environment, and gold is different, looks different, behaves differently, uh, make it old enough and it won't be malleable, and so on and so forth. So that's the key idea of that essence. And, and what triggered my heretical thoughts was it, the essence of these species, and everyone talks of species, but all the taxa we need to talk about, genera, genera families, orders, and so on and so forth properties of here's one of my examples the property of Indian elephants and Indian rhinos and African rhinos can't be explained except by something that is partly intrinsic Indian rhinos have one horn African rhinos have two horns every or almost every you know there's always a bit of a problem because of the freaks and monsters but leave that aside any 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 rhino in in India an Indian rhino will grow up to have one horn. Any rhino in Africa will grow up to have two horns. Why? What explains just that one thing? And it's something to do with the nature of these animals, and the difference between the natures is what counts to the for the one horn and the two horn. That is the basic idea. There's some. It's a causal explanatory question. The nature has to explain the way things are. And you don't... And This is the argument that runs right through my book.
1: Yeah, okay. It's actually,
0: as I said, a very old point of view. And I I can't remember a moment in my life where I didn't believe this. Uh, uh, Long before I... In fact, you know, even at kindergarten. But anyway, uh, it's an old idea. In my book, I don't attribute it to people, I, I I pick a very eminent uh, and extremely good philosopher of biology, Elliot Sober. He articulates this idea at one point, even though he's basically an, an anti-essentialist, but he nonetheless expresses this view of what an essence must do. It must do play this explanatory or causal role. Right. So I I call this all through the book the Sober demand. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> Okay. Uh, he was
0: oh, he, uh, he 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 uh, was quite tickled that he got he, he that name. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, so here's I mean maybe this is what Samir Akasha was getting out with with his you know definition. Um, so. Th- uh, you mentioned brief, very brief acts. You know, in one footnote, and just kind of by reference to Hox genes. Um, you know, homeobox. Um,
0: I'm sorry, I'm not following you.
1: The the homeobox gene, right? You call them Hox. Oh. Genes. yeah. You don't really, Oh yes, right. You don't go into them. Okay, so but here's here's the here's the essential point. Tonight. Um, a lot of these, you know. The internal, you might call it, the internal properties or features, you know, of the genome or of epigenetics or of de- development, yes. uh, these do explain, you know, why a particular species has a particular observable characteristic, but right. the... Properties themselves are individuated across a number of species. They're not. They're not intrinsic to each species. And the reason why I mentioned the homeobox is because the rhino, both rhinos, um, you know, the 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 very look of a the the body plan of a rhino, but the body plan of any eukaryote depends on the homeobox gene, which is individuated across all of them. And so you can say, oh, the reason why the rhino has such and such observable characteristic is because of its genome, but the part of the, but there's different parts of the genome, and many of those parts are not specific to the rhino, but instead are shared across many species. So you have lots of intrinsic genomic stuff that's explaining the external characteristics, but these things are not specific, they're not cut species by species by species.
0: Right, Um, I'm not sure I'm getting your point entirely, but, because it sounds to me as if it's uh, quite straightforward in agreement with what I'm claiming. Uh, I'm not talking about species. I'm talking about the the essence of. Uh, I'm not talking of species in particular. I'm talking of the essence of taxa, and I mean any taxa that are thought to be in the Linnae- Linnaean hierarchy. Now, of course, uh, there are there's a hot the hierarchy goes up and up and up, as it were, and of course uh, there are lots of properties that um, are explained. Um, There are lots of properties of any organism that are explained quite adequately, not by its being of this particular species, or even this particular genus, or even this particular family, or so on. Because some of them, for example, if it's a mammal, (laughs) very high up. That that alone explains a whole lot of of its its properties. It's because it has the essence of a mammal. Not because it's a canis familiaris. It's because it has, that, that is, it. The, the primarily explanatory thing is it's because it's a mammal that it has a lot of these properties. Take, take a particular fox, let's call him Fred. It's actually a red fox, a member of the species Rufus Rufus. Now, all of its properties are explained by, primarily by it being a member of Rufus Rufus, the particular bushy tail with a white b- bushy tail with a white top. Many other properties of it are explained by it being a, a, a rufus, which is the genus, namely the retractable claws. Other properties are explained by it being a canidae, which is its uh, order, that it uh, walks on its toes. Dogs, jackals, foxes all walk on their toes. So what does the explanatory work for a particular organism may often be something attacks taxon. Uh, being in a taxon that is actually quite far above being a species, uh-huh. So that's what I feel that's how I respond to the, the, the points you're making, which I totally agree with. yeah.
1: Okay, so so there's always some which I guess what you're saying there's always some, some residue there that is not going to be individuated across various species.
0: Right. but not in, not any species. So let me just stop for a second. It's very hard to talk in, as I've discovered, in the philosophy of biology, it's, or even talking to biologists. it's very hard to get them to talk about anything but species. But species, and in fact, and blood runs in the gutters in biology over what it is to be a species, the famous problem of the species concept. I think this is a little bit of a distraction from uh, if you're really getting into the metaphysics of things here uh, just the same things happen within a species the sort of variation you're talking about i mean um species have subspecies i uh, one of the examples i deal with in the book is this is um the the garter snake can the california garter snake now there's, there's ones that exist on the peninsula and there's ones that are at the coast. And they're different subspecies, but they're subspecies of the one species. And the two subspecies differ quite strikingly. That's why they were picked out as subspecies. So if you want to explain the properties of a garter snake, there are lots of things you can explain which cover both the peninsula and the coastal. And there are lots of things you can't. You have to go to the subspecies in order to explain the particular skin color right so there's a hierarchy of explanation a hierarchy of explanation which sort of in my view of course appropriately matches the hierarchy of the taxa okay so
1: um one one of the things that occurred to me when i was reading when i was thinking about your you know explanatory argument you know the idea that that biologists are somehow implicitly committed to intrinsic essences, um, it, you know, because they will say things like, you know, if it has such and such features, it's because it's a mammal, right, to use the example that that you gave earlier, or it, because it's a, you know, uh, a rhino of this particular species or something. Um, and, you know, I was just wondering, Th- those those sorts of explanations you know struck me not so much as what say a biologist would give to their colleagues you know in biology but rather you know the sort of explanation something that would count as an explanation in a pedagogical context or folk biology context or popular science um, where they're sort of placeholders, you know. You you know you, you you talk to a you know somebody who doesn't know much about biology and say you know why does it you know why does this particular animal have this have this feature you know it's because it belongs to this species and that's perfectly fine it seems as a you might call folk explanation and it could be that commitment to intrinsic essences. Is part of pe- is part of what explained why people believe those sorts of or affirm or offer those sorts of explanations. But it wasn't clear to me that this is actually the sorts of explanations that a biologist will be giving to each other. So is this a view
0: we haven't of, done the sociology, Gary, but yeah. what matters here is what is the explanation?
1: Well, right? the-
0: Look what! Look at the biology. Well, what is the informed explanation? Given the, bio, the biological facts, what is the informed explanation of the, the Indian rhino having one horn? What is the informed explanation of the z- zebra, or do you call it zebra? Forget, I've got cultural jumble from these many English-speaking worlds I live in. Um, has stripes. What is it? What is, the, you know, that's the key issue. Yeah.
1: But thing is, lots of different animals have stripes and there's a very often a common there's a common sort of developmental reason why their patterning takes on a particular, you know, it, you know, why, why there's a particular pattern. And that explanation will be the same across numerous species. So the explanation will not be you know, just that species, it'll be one that equally applies to other species that have striped. So in what sense would, you know, the explanation require an intrinsic property? I'm not sure what's going on
0: here. We've got to distinguish two things. One is the, what, I follow, this is Meyer's distinction, which I put a lot of emphasis on, between structural, between, he called them proximal and ultimate explanations i think that's very unhelpful um, uh, uh, the terminology uh, seems to me much better he calls the two sorts of explanations structural or historical and uh uh when you say why why does a uh, um why does zebras have stripes you could be asking either of those questions uh and uh When I'm arguing for the intrinsic essences, I'm asking the structural, I'm looking for a structural explanation. That is, what is it that when this organism is born into the world that is in fact a zebra, what is it then about this organism that causes it in its environment to end up with stripes? And there's an answer for that, which has no reference to other species or anything else like that. I mean, it may have explanations in common, um and but then you've got the 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 developmental the um the historical question which is a different one. how did it come about that there were all these organisms with stripes that's a historical evolutionary question and of course there's certain sorts of evolutionary pressures which uh have led to that just as they've led to to other sorts of organisms. So I, you know, we just we have to just take each each explanation as it comes. But the stripes one is really good. Uh Sarah Jane Leslie, in a terrific article, um, uh, which is very critical of essentialism, uh, so I think she's mostly wrong, but it's a terrific article. And um I spend quite a lot of time responding to it. She has a lovely example to do with stripes, in fact. Uh, um there's a lily that's striped and of course there's tigers and there's zebras and yes so you can have different explanations of stripes in animals and then you can have the same one it, it just it it fought the the story just falls where it may but it's always going to be an explanation that appeals yeah. to a certain nature
1: well it, it it does appeal to an intrinsic you know property if you need but but the the question is going from intrinsic property to intrinsic nature seems to be the the key bit here.
0: Yes, it is a key bit. You're absolutely right. And uh, and in my arguments with uh, the biologists, this has really been so that I keep being I keep being told, oh, uh, in my original uh, resurrecting paper, I said the historical explanations of these of these um, properties suggest of the. Historical um, as historical essence cannot do the job required of the structural explanation, and in my my critics, of, some of the critics like Arashevsky have said yes, they can, and so on. So and so we've been to back and forth, but this is a key issue. You're right. I I say that relational or ex- historical explanations are explanatorily hopeless when it comes to structural properties. You want to explain um, why, um, well, I'm, I'm just going to be repeating myself. You want to explain, I mean, what is the, what is the historic, what is the, how can a historical explanation explain Indian rhinos having one horn and African rhinos having two? The structural explanation, how could they help with that? I don't see any, 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 it's just, they're explanatory hopeless. That's the line.
1: Okay. Um, but you're
0: right. This is where this is where a lot of the action is. It's all an action on what is doing the causal work.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um so uh let me see. I want to make sure we have enough uh time. So let me ask about intra uh about individual essences, right? Um, ah, right. aka Hexades, but you don't use that word because that's Aristotelian. Um so yeah, what's your view?
0: Well, I don't think of it as Aristotelian, I think of it as 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 as. As uh, um, old time metaphysics, and okay. I'm a, I'm a Quinean. I don't I don't get involved in that sort of uh, uh, dark areas no.
1: Okay. So do do individuals have essences? Uh, yes. Okay. All
0: individual all individuals have essences.
1: Yes. Okay. Um, so can you explain? Not that? just
0: not just biological individuals. I think all t- all kinds have essences, and not just biological kinds. Um, and I think all. Individuals have essences and not just biological individuals. And the only thing then is to figure out what the essence is.
1: And uh, you also make the separate argument that uh, that individuals are essentially members of the taxon or taxons to which they belong. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, yeah. Yes. Which is a separate issue.
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, it's actually interesting, Carrie, because... Um, and which, uh, as if you, since you've read my book, you'll notice I'm rather sensitive to this. This is not an issue. This whole matter, these issues to do with individuals that you've just raised, is not a matter that has received, until recently, any attention at all in biology <laughs> that, that one can discover. There has certainly been a lot, of course, about the essence of taxa, that not particularly species, but not about individuals. And it all got going uh, in a very uh, uh, striking article by uh, Joseph Laporte uh, called "Essential Membership," and he addressed the last of those issues you mentioned. That is, is it is it is it the case that um, an organism that is a member of a species is essentially a member of that species? And he he argued no. Um, and he implied, I think rightly, that this was the sort of answer that was implicit in in a lot of uh, what's going on in biology. But no one had really addressed this issue until him. Okasha came along in the article I've already mentioned that I got going with, and he endorsed what Laporte had said about essential membership. So and that was uh, that article of Okasha's was two thousand and two, and for Laporte's was 1997. Until then, no one had raised these issues at all. But what's striking about, to this day, is uh, no one has raised, even addressed in the philosophy, by, until I did, the issue of what is the essence of an individual. That is, what Laporte and then Okasha did, was deny something, about the essence of an individual. They denied that it was essentially a member of its species, but they didn't say anything about what its essence was. And that's what I addressed. So I'm, as far as I know, the first person to actually address this issue. Um, uh, and th- it makes, this makes you worried. If you're not into old-time metaphysics, which I'm not, uh, you should think to yourself as biologists or philosophers of biology and are not actually... Address this issue. Maybe it's not of serious scientific interest, and I so I do try to show that it is. Um, but it's it's really a striking thing that it, it has not been addressed. And uh, um, so I've forgotten which philosopher of biology remarked that maybe it was Okasha that whereas whereas the essences of kinds uh, like taxa and so on was something that we look to biology for answers. Um, when it comes to individuals, we just sit in our armchair and do intuitions. (laughs) And I, of course, take a very dim view of that in general. (laughs) And so, of course, I had to resist that. Uh, So I think the argument for individual essences is um, analogous to the argument for kind essences. Um, And here it is in a nutshell again. Every individual has certain... Properties which we can all observe and some, some that we can't observe. And it has all those properties in virtue of its nature or its essence. Um, and so its nature is what explains in the environment, of course, the way it is. Again, it's this very, this is a very old idea. Um, and uh, that's how I approach individual essences. And I propose my theory is uh, I describe as Kripkean. Um, Kripke, of course, did it all from his intuitions, which were astonishing. Um, and um, see, one of the things you could say about what I'm arguing in my book altogether is, Kripke, from his armchair, got a lot more right than the philosophers of biology, studying biology. Oh, <laughs> oh wow! Um, uh, and they they are very dismissive of Kripke and Putnam and uh saying things like uh someone remarked on Kripke and Putnam that they were somewhere to the right of Aristotle <laughs> that was ruse ruse is a very nice remark so i think uh i think Kripke and um, Kripke by the way is expressing also it seems to me views which are pretty well innate in ordinary, ordinary humans uh people grow up really with essentialist views as psychologists have demonstrated so I think uh, the, the little children and Kripke and Putnam are basically right, and the philosophers of biology are wrong.
1: Mm. Well, I, that kind of bring, goes back to the the issue I raised earlier about whether this is really about folk biology rather than actual biology.
0: Um, oh, well, I don't see... Didn't know you raised that. I don't see it as anything to do... I'm, I'm not...
1: Yeah, I I'm know. Sorry, I, I know don't, you don't, but I, I was... I, I that question I, I take all my
0: arguments from biology I don't take yeah. I, I don't um well I don't want to be rude on your show yeah. but uh, <laughs> about what I th- about the folk but <laughs> yeah okay so Except I think the folk are often more right <laughs> yeah fair enough
1: um so let me you know speaking of the folk uh you know you and you mentioned this earlier the whole idea of um of racial realism um yeah. yeah so so that's a very you know hot topic these days. You mentioned question answer. Um, yeah, so so what what is your what is your view on that? I mean how, how does your views of 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 essentialism intersect with debates about racial realism?
0: Right and realism. I um, also my views about realism, uh, the chapter on race reflects certainly the sort of essentialist arguments that I have developed uh, in the book before that, but also reflects um, positions on the real, on on scientific realism to do with um, natural kinds and so on. Um, Yeah. um, So it's, it does bring in the realism issue. Um, And I was, well, um, so sorry, um, let me just pause and sum that up, because yeah, you asked a, a good question, and I, I, I've gone around about it. Yeah, partly what I say in the race realism and essentialism chapter is simply drawing on the ideas in the earlier chapters, and partly it is drawing on some other stuff to do with realism. Um, and I wrote it partly because I got intrigued by the issue, but also partly because it was clear that. What I was saying in the book elsewhere had implications, clear implications for the, for the race debate, and that's why I, I, I took it on. Um, but the most important thing I think I, I'm trying to emphasize in my racing race de- handling of the, the race issue is you've got to distinguish the taxon issue from the category issue. Um, What you get, one of the sort of provocative ways that the debate proceeds is people say race is real or they say race isn't real. Race exists. Race doesn't exist. All that sort of language, real and exists. But what does it amount to? I go through some various alternatives, and I say, "Look, the only real issue that that you can find here, uh, you can split it down into two real issues. I mean, it seems <laughs> well. I could, I, I could sort of run through that argument. What, why is, why is this the real issue? But let me just give you what I think the real issue. The real issue is a tax on issue and a category issue, and the real issue." Uh, for the for the taxon is are there biologically explanatory kinds of the sort that are thought to be races? I say thought to be races because when you're doing the taxon issue, let's not worry whether they're rightly called races. Are there? We know what kinds are thought to be races. Let's look at them. Are they explanatorily interesting kinds? For example, people talk of Amerindians. The Indians, the native indigenous people to the Americas, Amerindians, and people talk of Pacific Islanders, and they talk of Africans or Black Africans and so on. Are these explanatorily interesting? And notice I'm not talking of races here. And are these explanatorily interesting? I'm not explicitly talking. It doesn't matter whether they're races. Are they explanatorily interesting kinds from a biological point of view? We're not talking sociological. We're just talking biology. Um, and I want to argue that issue. I argue that issue, and I say clearly, yes. Uh I say I say there are subspecific below the level of species, kinds in biology, leave aside humans from it, kinds in biology that are explanatorily significant and are often often thought to be races. You know, There are four races of a particular moss. You'll see this in in uh, some dictionary I found. So there are subspecific groups which are explanatorily significant, I argue, are, are thought by biologists to be racist. And I think this is true, is true also in uh, with the human species. So that's the taxon issue. And I think the answer, as I said, is a resounding yes. Yes, there really are explanatorily interesting taxon, thought to be, taxon, thought to be racist. And then there's the category issue, which is much more difficult. But do you want me to pause for uh, you to respond Um, or talk about?
1: uh, No, we. I mean, we don't have a lot of time, so this is sort of my last That's that's I should move question then. Yes. Okay.
0: Okay. So the category issue is 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 much trickier, and it's much less easy to give a definitive answer. Uh, That is the category issue. So the tax on issue was: Are there biologically explanatory, explanatory kinds that are thought to be racist? Or if in the case of it, are there explanatory and certain human kinds that are human groups that are thought to be racist? And they, I say resounding answer is yes. Uh, 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 at the category level, are there explanatory interesting categories? Is there an explanatory interesting category? Of race. Well, uh, here, as I said, much more difficult. Um, but what I mainly, one of the main things I do is look at, at in general, at the issue of explanatorily interesting categories. So forget for a moment altogether about race and other subspecific categories. And look at the Linnaean hierarchy, species, genera, family, order, and so on. Are they explanatory interesting? Well, you see, here there's a big debate in in has been a big debate in biology. And of course, the consensus is no. <laughs> um people think species is, yeah, there we've got an explanatorily interesting category. Even there, this argument that is. There are some people who argue very persuasively in my view, like Hitcher and Erashevsky, argue that um, um, species, in effect, they're arguing, they don't put it this way, in effect, species is not an explanatory interesting category. But we need to break it down to use um uh Eroshevsky's terminology, uh, eco-species, biospecies, and uh, oh, I've forgotten the other one, I'm sorry. uh that is Species itself is not an interesting category. We need sort of other sort of things at the specific specific level. So there's a big argument even about species, but in general, people are realist about species. Yes, it is an explanatory interesting category. Move up the hierarchy and people say no. Yet they all keep talking about them. (laughs) In fact, you can't open any article... On anything just about, without people talking about particular genera, family order, whole articles depend. It seemed to be on uh, taking category talk as scientifically serious. So you've got a real conundrum here, and uh, uh, I argue, and I argue in the in my race paper, and I've actually published a paper on this that yes, the the categories. Notice I'm not talking about race here. The categories are explanatory, but perhaps only in a minimal way of indicating a hierarchy and explanation. My main thought as far as race is concerned, I apply this and I say, look, at worst, race is in the same boat. We're talking now the category race, we're not talking about the taxa that are thought to be races. The category race, as far as explanatory biology is concerned... Is in the same boat as the higher categories, and so that's uh, at least puts some perspective on what the issue is. But I then apply the argument I gave a second ago, or jested je- out a second ago, about the higher categories, namely that they are, in a minimal respect, explanatory in biology, at least in a minimal respect. I say that similarly, at least in a minimal respect, the category race is explanatorily high hopeful. The helpfulness of all of these categories in the minimal respect is indicating, okay, in only a pretty rough and ready way, indicating a place in the hierarchy. And that's significant, the hierarchy of taxa. The hierarchy of taxa is as real as could be you're indicating a place in the hierarchy of taxa in a rough and ready way, which is helpful because it indicates a, a level of explanation. Just get back a few minutes ago when we were talking about Rufus, uh, Fred, our, our, our red fox. You get different sorts of explanations at, at the level of Canidae, die, at the level of Rufus, and at the level of Rufus, Rufus. And those levels are called Family, gen, uh, genus, and species—they are different levels of explanation. As indeed I illustrated when we were, when I was talking about it, and that's the significance that you get from calling these attacks on whatever species, genus, and so on—you get an indication of a level of explanation. I think probably we need more than that, as I indicated in the book, but, well, but at least that's a start. And I think race is the same. Here we're going subspecific. Biologists make all sorts of distinctions at the subspecific level. Most famous, of course, is they talk of subspecies, but they talk of ecotypes. They talk of forms. They talk of deems and strains. And of course, they talk of races. So all of these are subspecific categories, rather poorly explained, and there's no uniformity about it. But what people are attempting there is to mark out levels of explanation.
1: Okay. Um, so we're we're out of time, but I did want to ask one final question. Uh, just what are you working on now? Have you gone into a different direction? Or are you still continuing along the biological essentialism track?
0: No, I haven't, I haven't done any biology since uh, I finished this book. And I sent it off and I read, published the paper on um uh, categories which I was just talking about um so I've gone back to the philosophy of language um uh, of course I'm still uh, very interested in but I had some other things I had to get done on I'm, I'm putting together a volume of uh, my papers on the philosophy of language which is to, come, it's to be called beyond reference and Beyond. It's to come out with Oxford so that's what I had been working on in 2023 I haven't lost interest in this topic. However, I'm 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 waiting to... <laughs> um, for criticism. One of the things that happens when you publish a book is, you know, you've worked so hard on it for so long, and one sends it out into the world, and and then there's this sort of deafening silence.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah. I'm I'm hope, hoping for a break in the silence.
1: Very good. Well. Um best wishes to you in the, with the, uh, the reference book. Um, and, uh, I look forward to seeing more of that. So thanks again for talking with, uh, new books in philosophy.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, Carrie. Yes.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Michael Devitt, distinguished professor of philosophy, emeritus at the graduate center of the city university of New York. His new book, Biological Essentialism, is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.